1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with the author of Latino Mass Mobilization, Immigration, Racialization, and Activism. The book is published by Cambridge University Press. The author is Chris Zapeta Mayan. Chris, how are you doing today?
0: Great. Thank you for having me here.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, great to have you on. And, and uh, as we were just talking uh, before we started, uh, this is a book that I really enjoyed because I've um, – uh, thought about similar similar types of uh, issues, and you've, you've written such an interesting and timely book. Uh, before we get to the substance of the book, maybe you can share just a little bit about yourself. To, uh, tell us about yourself.
0: Sure. Well, um, I'm an assistant professor and political scientist in the Department of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley. I received my PhD from the Department of Government at Cornell University, um, and I'm also the uh, faculty chair of the Center for Research on Social Change at UC Berkeley.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I always love reading the acknowledgement sections of books, and the list of people that you thank along the way is so long and numerous. Um, you have, you have, uh, I suspect, uh, been been touched by and supported by and supported uh, so many uh, people. The, uh, you you are very gracious in your acknowledgement section uh, of, of the people in your past that, that have supported you. Um, so, so let's talk about this really interesting and, and also very timely book. Uh, the, the book is primarily about the period, uh, of 2006 and afterwards. Uh, but you begin the book with a history of the immigrant rights movement from 1965 to 2005. Why is this the right time period to track this history? And and uh, after you sort of maybe talk a little bit about that, who are some of the major players in the movement during this time period, especially those representing Latino immigrants?
0: Sure, sure, sure. Um, so I think uh, throughout American history, right, there's always been uh, what we could call episodes of Amer- of immigrant activism. Some of the most famous examples being things like the or events like the Chicago Haymarket Affair in the late 1800s, or um, the Bisbee Revolt in Arizona in the early 1900s. And just like today, uh, detention deportations were often used against them for their activism. Uh, But they uh, they were never really seen as, and I don't think they they really saw themselves as a unified or national. Um, social movement focusing specifically on the rights of the foreign-born, right? So I think more often than not, they saw themselves as unionists or or anarchists or acting on behalf of of specific ethnic groups, right? But um, what we understand today as the modern immigrant rights movement, which um, I think focuses primarily on on the issue of immigrant illegality, um, is is a more recent phenomenon that I think could be uh, arguably, traced back to the late 1960s and 70s, when uh, changes to U.S. immigration laws uh, resulted in, in, not the prevention, but in the criminalization of the Mexican uh, labor force that Americans were using and, and and were dependent on. Right, so I think this is when we begin to see the first sustained organizing of undocumented immigrants. Um, by people like the pioneering organizers that I talk about the, in the book, uh, specifically uh, Burke Corona and Chole Alatore. Um, so, for example, and, and, I, and I identify them as being primary because uh, even though they were primarily based out of Los Angeles, um, I got to interview Chole Alatore. Uh, maybe about eight years ago and she was telling me that the issue of illegality was so new nobody knew how to organize around it and when people found out that they were doing it successfully in los angeles uh, she was all actually flying out to places across the country including new york city uh, to organize the first undocumented immigrant groups um, across across the nation right so i think um, la really created the the template for, um, for the modern-day immigrant rights organizing and a lot of the frames that are, that are often still used today.
1: Now, out of this history comes the uh, very significant protests and activism of 2006. Uh, what was the common target of those quite varied protests? They all come together in, in response to some very specific um, actions. Uh, what were those? What, what uh, Take us to that time period of 2006.
0: Yeah, so I think the the 2006 protest wave was uh, sparked by H.R. 4437, also known as the Sensenbrenner Bill, uh, which was a draconian piece of anti-immigrant legislation passed by the U.S. House of Representatives um, led by the Republican Party at the time in, in late December or in December of 2005, um, among its most punitive provisions, uh, I think the bill sought to not only increase the penalty of being undocumented uh, from a civil violation into a federal felony, uh, but it also wanted to punish anyone who uh, who helped or, or associated with undocumented people in the most basic ways, right? And they wanted to punish them pretty severely with uh, thousands of dollars of fines and even incarceration. And um, so this would have potentially criminalized everyone. Uh, from priests and teachers to doctors, employers, social service providers, and, and even the family members of, of people without papers, right? So the 2006 demonstrations uh, were primarily a response to this bill, uh, but also in response to the need for for immigration reform that included a path to citizenship uh, for the nation's undocumented immigrants.
1: Now, you you also described these protests and and the activists who took part in them. As unexpected, Uh, what was unexpected about the people who led the mobilization and activism in 2006? This is not necessarily the people who had been active and, and who we might expect based on social science theory.
0: Yeah, so I think a lot of the quantitative research at the time had shown us uh, that uh, Latinos in general, but Latino immigrants in particular, were amongst the least likely people in the United States to, to partake in political activism, right? They're, they're new to the country, uh, they want to kind of, they don't really understand the political system, they want to kind of not get in trouble, right? And 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 do anything that's going to draw attention to them, right? So not surprisingly, most studies had found um, that, that Latinos in general, but Latino immigrants in particular, um, didn't really uh, partake in contentious politics. Uh, in fact, uh, during this period, the national, uh, the largest uh, public opinion poll on Latinos. Uh, The uh, Latino National Survey was being taken, and it actually didn't even include any questions related to political activism because they thought, well, Latinos don't really, this isn't really a type of political behavior that Latinos participate in, so let's not even include it in our our survey, all right? and then in the middle of all of this, right, you have the largest protests in Latino political history happening, right? And it's, yes, you know, it was oftentimes called for by, you know, some of these traditional activist organizations, but the vast majority of participants and the protests organized were, were organized by um what I call un- unexpected uh, political actors, right? We're talking about people like small business owners, um, day laborers, nannies, uh, veterans, um, you know, people who usually uh, don't partake uh, in politics in, in the Latino community, uh, but this time uh, came out, right? And then they came out uh, uh, not only because a bill would have impacted them, uh, again, criminalizing not only undocumented people, but anybody who interacted with them, uh, but also because of of how the bill, and and actually the whole debate at the time uh, was what I call being racialized, right? So uh, at the time, if you remember, the Republican Party uh, went from attacking undocumented immigrants specifically to then kind of demonizing immigrants in general, to then criticizing things like bilingual education uh, and what they called the the browning of America, right? Saying that Latinos weren't assimilating like previous immigrant groups and, and they were a danger, Right, And um, I think a lot of us forget, you know, how um, the role that the English language media played in this, right? You had news anchors on mainstream uh, media channels like CNN, you know, Lou Dobbs, promoting conspiracy theories saying that uh, Mexican immigrants and Chicanos, Mexican Americans were were all part of this secret plot to take over the Southwest, right? So all of this was happening at the time, and and it made it easier for activists to reach out to traditionally non uh, political segments of the Latino community, um, which included not only undocumented immigrants, but also second and third generation Latinos, which research had showed don't really identify uh, with, with the immigration issue. Um, but it helped activists tell them like, hey, this this has less to do with public policy and more to do with with who you are, how you look, you know, the languages you speak, where your families comes from. All right. So, um, I think the combination of, of the of the direct and and collective impacts of the of the sensor burner bill really uh, helped mobilize traditionally non politically active uh, communities.
1: You know this this idea of the unexpected uh, activists and players in in this um, round of wave of protests also relates to, to some of your methods that you use in this book um, and and where you chose to investigate. You mentioned Los Angeles and New York, but you also um, uh, did, uh, studied in florida I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you did this work um this is extensive um, uh, interviews included um would you talk a little bit about why these three places and also um you know how you how you conducted and how you uh, learned uh about this
0: sure um so Again, we you know we most of the literature at the time on Latino political activism was really historically based, right? It was it was based on the nineteen sixties, Chicano movement and, and the Puerto Rican movement, um, and these kind of historic events, right? There wasn't a lot of work being written on, on Latino activism outside of labor union activism. Um, so in 2006, right, there was so many protests happening in, in not only the traditional uh, gateway cities like Chicago and New York and L.A., but also, in fact, the vast majority of the protests happened um, uh, in, outside of these, of these gateway cities. They happened in uh, the rural Midwest and actually the U.S. South, Right, so this was really surprising to to, to academics uh, and even activists themselves, right? Because it wasn't them, the traditional activists organizing them again, it was sometimes, you know, mom and pop uh, store owners, you know, local uh, community residents doing these things. And uh, so theoretically, I thought it was important for, uh, to kind of just get a sense of what went, uh, what was going on um, to, to look at places like Los Angeles, where we would expect immigrant mass mobilization to occur because, uh, it's, you know, it's a large immigrant population, it has a long history of immigrant activism, it has uh, dozens of immigrant rights organizations, right? So if immigrant mass mobilization was going to happen, uh, we would expect it to happen in a place like L.A., uh, and it did happen in a place like L.A., right? Where upwards to a half a million to over a million people took to the streets. Uh, New York was selected uh, for the same reasons. Uh, New York arguably has an even larger immigrant, um, <coughs> excuse me. New York has an even larger immigrant population, uh, arguably an even longer history of immigrant activism and more immigrant rights organizations and coalitions. Um, But unlike Los Angeles and Chicago and Dallas, uh, New York came relatively late to the protest wave and their demonstrations were nowhere close to the size of other uh, immigrant metropolises. Um, At the same time, New York had uh, the most diverse protests in the country. Uh, during this period, right? So I wanted to kind of investigate one, uh, why New York didn't mobilize to the same degree as other major immigrant cities, and also uh, the role that diversity and demographics played in the mobilizing uh, process. And Fort Myers was chosen uh, for completely different reasons. Fort Myers was an unexpected uh, location for migrant mass mobilization. Uh, Fort Myers is a relatively, at the time, was considered a new immigrant receiving destination. Um, right, There was no real history of immigrant activism or established uh, immigrant rights organizations there. Um, and yet this city of, uh, I think it was about 60,000 people, which according to the census is only 10% Latino, uh, had a demonstration of 75 to over 100,000 people there. Right, um, So that one I think was interesting. That case was interesting to me because it was an unexpected location. It was in the south didn 't have a history of activism and yet they had a mass mobilization there and then interestingly enough um, uh, what I found there that uh, the leading uh, actors and networks there weren 't you know these professional social movement organizations that parachuted in to organize. You know this vulnerable population. It was local immigrant community members themselves uh, who used things like soccer leagues, uh, local small businesses, uh, and their own personal, family, and social networks to to mobilize their communities.
1: You also write of the importance of the ethnic media. Um, how did the ethnic media play a part here? Because uh, we typically think of uh, social movements as successful when they kind of um, are picked up by the, the the more general mainstream media, but, but the ethnic media is a, plays a special role here. Um, would you talk a little bit about that and also the the types of media that were most important during this time period?
0: Yes, I think yeah, that's completely correct. The ethnic media played a, a vital role in, in the protest waves. Um, so, usually activists have to spend a lot of time organizing and planning demonstrations uh, in hopes of, of getting a lot of people to turn out. And one of the ways, reasons why they want a lot of people to turn out is because they know that it will increase the chances of the media covering their events, right? And for them, it's important to get media coverage uh, because this is how they're this is their chance to highlight the issues. Right. That they want to get out there. Um, and even then, when media shows up to cover their, their demonstrations, it's oftentimes uh, hard uh, for activists to get the media to, to cover the issues in the, in the same way that they would like them to. Right. Often it's the opposite. The media doesn't cover the issue the way activists would want them to. Right. Uh, 2006 was different because you had uh, Spanish language, uh, corporate mass channels of communications, uh, literally promoting the protests, running promo commercials all day long, encouraging their viewers uh, to participate uh, in, the, in these demonstrations. Right. You had activists on mainstream Spanish language uh, radio, uh, radio stations, right? Taking over the airwaves for three, four, five, six hours at a time, framing the issues, uh, answering callers' questions, trying to convince listeners of the importance to, to demonstrate against the Sensenbrenner bill and in favor of legalization, right? So this is something that was pretty kind of historic in an American, contemporary American um, social movement history. And, and I think it was especially interesting because at the time – uh, a lot was being made about the importance of new media and, and the internet as the next big tool for for activists, right? Which arguably has been, uh, but but in the case of the 2006 immigrant rights protest wave, it was actually old and traditional media outlets like newspapers and entertainment radio programs uh, that were the most important uh, ways that organizers got the word out to to the immigrant masses.
1: Now, um, as you noted earlier. The Sensenbrenner bill appears in December 2005, and many of the protests begin in 2006. In the book, you also connect the protests and activism to, uh, uh, to voting in the 2006 election and then the 2008 election. Um, how are these related? Uh, what was the relationship between this high level of of um, contentious politics and the more uh, traditional form of politics that we expect related to to voting, uh, maybe you can tie some of those things together for us.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Um, so this also comes back to to California, and the last time we had. Um, you know, one of the first times we had this major anti-immigrant laws being proposed, um, and here I'm talking about Proposition 187 in the, in the mid-90s uh, in California, which was similar to the Sensenbrenner Bills in, in many ways. It was criminalizing undocumented people and anybody who associated with them. And what happened in California is that you saw massive protests occur. I think it was something like 500,000 people in, in Los Angeles. Um uh, but what we saw subsequent to that, despite the the proposition uh, being passed because of uh, um, the size of the, uh, of the Latino electorate at the time, was unable to prevent it. Um, in the years following Prop 187, you saw massive. Uh, Latino citizenship, voter registration, and get out the vote drives that have arguably transformed California politics, now making uh, the Latino political caucus there uh, the largest and one one of the most obviously, or arguably one of the most important and strongest political caucuses in California state politics, right? So uh, a lot of the organizers and um, of the 2006 demonstrations in Los Angeles and in California knew that, right? So after the censor burner bill, they immediately thought like, oh, okay, this is the same thing's going to happen again, right? Latinos are going to become citizens and they're going to go out and vote and we're going to try to change this time national politics, right? Um, unfortunately for them in 2006 uh, during those midterm elections, um, uh, the you know the the Latino vote didn't have the impact that they said you know some activists claimed that they were going to have a million new voters right and they weren't able to 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 register that many new voters at the time um, but the same uh, coalitions and organizational structures that were solidified or created to coordinate the 2006 uh, protests. Uh, were subsequently used to launch these massive and historic Latino naturalization, voter registration, and and get out the vote drives during the 2008 election, and this was in combination with those mass channels of, of, of communication, that the Spanish language media outlets that I mentioned earlier, right? So both the activists and the media outlets uh, institutionalized their efforts and redirected their their energies uh, to to electoral politics.
1: Now we're a- Couple of years, not that long out from from uh, two thousand six and and from the two thousand eight election, but we seem to be in a very different point. Um, in the interest of of wrapping up our conversation, uh, where are these activists and and where is the social movement today uh, related to the Trump administration, the the new politics of immigration uh, and and immigration policy right now? Um, connect us to to our current moment maybe if you if you might um related to the research that you did uh, on this earlier time period
0: Sure um so I think right now I've, I've actually been doing some some uh, interviews and research on the contemporary movement and activism and what we found in a poll uh, I just survey um I just uh, did a survey where I added some questions uh, examining contemporary Latino support for immigrant activism and uh, still today the the majority of of Latino voters uh, support uh, immigrant rights activism and immigrants in, in general. Right? But in terms of the, the actual social movement itself, uh, obviously, the election of Donald Trump uh, was a devastating blow to the movement. And we've seen that no other uh, segment of society has been targeted, arguably more by Donald Trump since taking office than the immigrant community, Um at the same time, I think Trump's victory kind of uh, overshadowed some important uh, gains that the immigrant rights movement made during the the last election, right? They have the first uh, Latina senator right uh, win, and I believe in Nevada, right? You had the notorious uh, Sheriff Joe uh, Arpaio, you know, voted out of office by the immigrant rights movement in, in Arizona, right? You had the immigrant-heavy states that used to be swing states of Uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, which once again were solidly Democrats because of the Latino and immigrant votes, uh, right? So uh, definitely the Latino, at least at the electorally, um, the immigrant rights movement, you know, had some important victories at the local and state level. Uh, Nationally, though, they've realized that, okay, the political opportunity structure is closed right now at the federal level, right? So a lot of what they're doing is they're trying to – or uh, build and expand their bases to new areas outside of California, outside of New York, right? They're trying to build uh, their bases in the South in places where Donald Trump won, where there's immigrants there, right? Where a lot of times the immigrant rights movement hadn't really invested in creating organized bases there. Uh, They're currently doing that now, right? The dreamers organizations like United We Dream are expanding their bases uh, to the South and to the uh, rural Midwest. Uh, The other uh, tactic or strategy that the immigrant rights movement is doing is they're trying to focus on areas where they can expand immigrant rights. In California, for example, in response to Trump, you have a a progressive state legislator that wants to be seen as, as leading the resistance against Donald Trump. So right now, interestingly enough, although the political opportunity structures are closed at the federal level. In places like California, it's actually opened up. You have state legislators that were unwilling to, to pass uh, pro-immigrant laws, pro-immigrant uh, immigrant rights laws that were going to uh, be uh, contradictory or, or or attack the Obama administration are not are now willing to do so. Right, They want to prove their anti-Trump uh, credentials through passing progressive immigration laws. Right, And I think you see that most in California and the immigrant rights movement. I think right now is having this, what I would call a three-pronged approach where they're one, uh, trying to get legislative victories where they can in progressive states like California that are now more open to them uh, passing these types of laws. Uh, expanding their base being the second, I think, that they're focusing on, especially in, in, in the South and in the rural Midwest and in places where Trump won. Uh, and, and thirdly, I think uh, uh, they're focusing on electoral politics. They're realizing that, uh, you know, protests, activism, all of that is less – it's important – and it has to continue to, to be done, but it's less effective right now in pressuring the Trump administration to do anything. The only thing that both political parties are going to pay attention to is electoral power and electoral weight, right? So I think a lot of times, you're in a lot of places across the country, you're seeing this more kind of quiet form of activism where they're trying to register people, they're trying to impact local
1: elections. Yeah, this, this uh, really interesting book, uh, Latino Mass Mobilization, Immigration, Racialization, and Activism is published by Cambridge University Press and available widely. Chris, thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you.